3: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Here. Now for those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I get huge uh, satisfaction from letting everybody know a little bit about the history behind current events, conflicts uh, and big political upheavals in particular, but also cultural events, but this time I'm afraid it's conflict. In November 2020, the Tigray region of Ethiopia, the very, very north of that gigantic country in in northeast Africa, experience fighting between the Tigrayan regional government and the Ethiopian army, effectively. The Ethiopians appear to be aided by the Eritreans as well, which is uh, the country sandwiched between Ethiopia and the Red Sea to the north. This conflict has been going on for around a month now, and because of COVID, it's not perhaps getting the global recognition that it deserves. In this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Richard Reed. He's at Oxford University. He's a historian of uh, modern Africa, particularly Ethiopia. And it was a great chance to ask him about some of the deeper history behind Ethiopia. We haven't talked about it on the pod before. Most importantly of all, the country has its own fascinating history, uh, the Christianization, and its own experience of conquest and imperialism both the hands of Europeans, the Italians, for example, in the late 19th, early 20th century, but actually African imperialism, African state building uh, before that in the 19th century. This is going to be a fascinating podcast. Do please enjoy everybody. If you want to come watch one of these podcasts live, we're going on a tour in October 2021. Post-vaccine tour, everyone. If the whole place is still standing, we're going to be touring. We are going to many of the UK's biggest cities. We are going to do a live show in each. We're going to go on the podcast. We're going to have a great historian there telling us about her or his book. We're going to have a historian telling us about the local place that we're in, the history of that place. And then we're going to have time for lots of chat and discussion as well. Might even do some social proximity. Looking forward to it. You can go to historyhit.com slash tour to get a hold of that. And as ever, the TV channel—it's heating up over there at the moment. Get a history dot TV use the code POD one PO one to get a month for free. You're gonna love it. We've got some big news. We we'll think we'll let we'll let you know the big news on Friday. But it's big news. In the meantime, everyone here is Professor Richard Reed. Enjoy. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Dan.
3: It must be mixed feelings as a specialist. When suddenly journalists and podcasters come a knocking on the door, because usually it's probably because the country in which you're particularly interested, invested in, is, is experiencing some kind of tumult.
1: It's a double edged sword, really. I mean, it's always exciting to be able to explain the historical context of particular situations in Africa. Unfortunately, that usually means that something has gone badly wrong. Well, let's find out why it's gone badly Or Can I just drag you way
3: back to start with? I know we're going to talk mostly about modern history, but unlike many other North African countries, it occupies a particular place in the European mind through the really early medieval, right the way through to the early modern period. Why is that?
1: This myth around Prester John, this was the idea in lit medieval, early modern Europe that somewhere in the East, broadly defined, there was a Christian kingdom of some kind. No one knew where it was. In fact, you know, there are all sorts of possible locations, including Tibet. That was the beginning of the idea that Ethiopia was a country with whom Europe could do business. The Portuguese, of course, eventually found it in the 15th, early 16th centuries. And I think it was to do with the fact that it was Christian and that it was at least it had elite literacy and looked like a kind of feudal empire, the kind of state that that Europe could relate to owing to Ethiopia's own mythology, I think Ethiopians have always been very good at uh, projecting a particular image to a global audience. And, and that really begins in the early modern period.
3: Is modern Ethiopia a kind of a descendant of past iterations or is it quite a, con- is actually like most nation states, quite a contingent sort of boundaries that have been drawn?
1: It's quite contested, that idea. I mean, Ethiopia itself is is very proud of the idea that they have hundreds and hundreds of years of continual history. I think it's slightly more problematic than that. There are various iterations of a state in the Ethiopian highlands, in that northern part, including Tigray, which we'll talk about. And in many ways, it begins with the ancient state of Aksum. In the first millennium CE, Aksum collapses, and several hundred years later, you do get the emergence of what is discernibly Ethiopia, at least the nucleus of Ethiopia, but obviously it go in that very long period, it goes through all sorts of collapses and and various forms of disintegration and invasions and so on. I suppose you could argue that at its core, in its Christian Semitic core, it has this idea of Christian belief of literacy of a set of kind of icons around what it is to be Ethiopia, a very commonly held set of cultural reference points. So there is a certain amount of continuity there. But of course, the Ethiopia of the more recent past is quite unrecognisable to that early modern state.
3: And you've mentioned the highlands there. Do the highlands give Ethiopia a kind of geographical coherence that you don't see compared to, say, North and South Sudan to its west?
1: Its mountainous landscape is definitely part of its identity. A sense of separation, I guess, is enhanced as a result from the rest of the region. So one of the long-standing tropes in the highlands is that they are elevated, both culturally and physically, from the surrounding area, including Sudan, Somalia, the Eritrean Red Sea coast. So yes is the short answer to that. It's worth pointing out, though, that the at certain in certain parts of the Ethiopian highlands communication is actually quite difficult in the early modern period. So in fact, in many ways, the state, when the state disintegrates, insurgent groups could actually retreat to particular parts of the highlands and and defend those quite easily. So yes, the mountains give the larger Ethiopian state a sense of identity, but within those mountains, it's actually quite easy for the state to disintegrate. So it's,
3: ungovernable and unconquerable. Perfect. Ethiopia gets this extraordinary reputation as this place that holds out against the uh, European imperialism, scramble for Africa right until the very, very end. Is that deserved? I mean, is it something of, almost unique within Africa?
1: It is unique in the sense that Ethiopia is the only African state that successfully sees off a European invasion. The Italian invasion of 1896, Battle of Adwa, of course, is uh, widely celebrated and is still a national holiday in Ethiopia today. That permanently sends the Italians packing, although not too far because they stay in Eritrea and, of course, they stay in Italian Somaliland. But yes, Ethiopia remains independent until the mid 1930s. Mussolini comes back, and there's a kind of five or six year period of fascist occupation. That, in a way, of course, enhances Ethiopia's exceptionalism. But I would actually make a slightly different argument, um, which is that Ethiopia is indeed uniquely successful but actually what Ethiopia achieves in the 1890s represents what is happening more broadly across the continent in terms of military achievements, the acquisition of firearms. Ethiopia is just particularly good at it in in ways that no one else is but there's no question that it's the fact that Ethiopia actually not only survives the scramble for Africa but takes part in it and carves up a big chunk of what is today modern Ethiopia. But those areas, particularly in the south and the west, did not actually belong to any kind of ancient Ethiopian state.
3: This was an African state that took part in the scramble for Africa.
1: And that is what also kind of enhances international images of Ethiopia as not quite African, as, as somewhere, you know, in the highly racialized language of the time, Emperor Menelik, who's in charge uh, in the 1890s, is seen as, uh, he's described by one European observer as almost European in its ability to carve up less civilised inhabitants. This is the kind of language that's used at the time.
3: Does Ethiopia struggle from from that legacy of of being an imperial project from the 19th century
1: yes there's always been this tension at the heart of the Ethiopian nation state that ethiopia itself is an empire it has imposed a localized form of imperialism on various groups again particularly in 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 the southern third of ethiopia if you can imagine it and that has complicated its sense of self through the 20th century because Ethiopia has, at various points in the long 20th century, experienced insurgencies by groups that that would claim to have been conquered by not only by European states but by a, a central Ethiopian empire-building elite. So that kind of complicates Ethiopian nationalism. One other thing that's worth mentioning, Dan, is that in the years after the Battle of Adwa, which of course was supposed to be Ethiopia's finest moment. there is actually a group of Ethiopian intellectuals who begin to wonder if winning the Battle of Adba wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to them. And this is largely connected to the kind of enduring, feudal nature of the Ethiopian state deep into the 20th century, particularly under Haile Selassie. And the idea, uh, misconceived, but but a a powerful idea among Ethiopians, in fact, that their neighbours under colonial rule are doing much better. State builders have tried different ways of combating the centrifugalism, if we can put it that way, that has always undermined state builders' attempts at cohesion and unity. In the 1930s, for example, when the Italians invaded uh, for the second time, this time more successfully, one of the reasons behind their success was the fact that a number of groups in the north, for example, joined them against Haile Selassie. There were a number of Members of the political elite, in particular provinces, that were willing to work with the Italians against Haile Selassie, who was seen as illegitimate. So in the 40s and 50s and 60s, when Haile Selassie is restored by the Brits, there's an attempt at unifying the state under a series of different constitutions or constitutional arrangements. uh, First of all, through the idea of absolute monarchy. Later on, of course, as Haile Selassie reaches the end uh, of the road, there are, there's the rise of kind of socialist uh, ideology within Ethiopia, the idea that perhaps we can tie Ethiopia together through a more agreeable set of uh, constitutional arrangements that recognise Ethiopia's ethnic diversity. I guess the 20th century is defined in those terms. How do we tie these outlying provinces together? How do we bring about a system that everyone feels invested in? And uh, at times they have failed utterly, in fact, to do that. One of the things that happens in the early 1990s, for example, as the background to where we are now, in fact, the, the current crisis, is that the, and I don't want to throw too many acronyms at you, but the EPRDF, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which is a coalition of various rebel groups, including from Tigray, essentially experiments with a federal arrangement and tries to kind of bring about a more equitable representation of various groups at the center. But I think you're right. It's fair to say that Ethiopia has been very difficult to govern from the point of view of its ethnic and regional diversity. It's one of the very few African states for the reasons we we mentioned earlier that is supposed to have a deep-rooted sense of itself and a deep-rooted nationalism the problem is that that nationalism has for a very very long time been dominated by one or two groups in the center and the northern part of the country that's really at the root of um, the current crisis in many ways the campaign to overthrow Mengistu is one that that involves a a degree of unity among a, a number of insurgent groups who basically believe in sort of social revolution, ethnic self-determination, a number of key elements in their in their programs are shared across what becomes the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, so this big coalition of groups. And of course at the same time you've got the insurgency in Eritrea because at this time in the 60s, 70s, 80s Eritrea is formally part of Ethiopia. But they're waging their own war for independence. And at various points, they work alongside the other Ethiopian groups. So the legacy of the overthrow of Mengistu is that sense that it's possible to rebuild and redesign an Ethiopia that works for everyone. Now, as it turns out, that has unraveled in the last couple of years. But that's the real, I guess that's the real long term legacy of the overthrow of of Mengistu. Mengistu was the last leader to attempt in a a highly militarised way up until now, to impose a kind of unitary system of government on Ethiopia. You're
3: listening to History Hit. We're talking about Ethiopia with Professor Richard Reid. More after this.
0: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Eritrea, which is the northern, this state to the north on the Red Sea, naively, I assume that Eritrea is sort of confirming its independence from Ethiopia. This conflict looks like a kind of a gradual unravelling that almost begins with that process. Are these just peripheral bits of Ethiopia, like Eritrea did in the 90s or the 80s, and 90s, just asserting their sovereignty?
1: Certainly, in the case of Eritrea, yes. Uh, but they, they had quite a unique case in that Eritrea had been an Italian colony. So Um, Eritrean nationalists in the 60s and 70s, for example, argued that their struggle was anti-colonial and it was anti-colonial because Ethiopia was a colonial empire and had illegally occupied them. There was a nationalist case to be made for Eritrea that was not as easy to make for other constituent parts of Ethiopia, including Tigray uh, in the north, which is, you know, neighbouring Eritrea inside Ethiopia, because Tigray was and very much saw itself as part of the historic centre of Ethiopia. So those struggles were a little more complicated, whereas Eritrea could say, "We we were never part of Ethiopia, we are our own kind of colonial entity now struggling for independence. Other parts of Ethiopia could not quite make that sort of cohesive case.
3: How do you characterise the relations between the two countries from the 90s to 20... kind of 18-ish, I think it is?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, at at the centre of of that period is a a full-scale war between 1998 and 2000, uh, in which tens of thousands of people died. It got a brief bit of attention, but unfortunately, as is the case with many conflicts in Africa, the kind of media circus quickly moved on. It ended in 2000 in an uneasy ceasefire, and then you have... Essentially, 18 years of no war, no peace. For those of us who observe the region, kind of assume that it will be like that forever. You were, you were kind of looking at a, a, a kind of Kashmir um, sort of situation. 2018, there was suddenly a peace deal. Again, that needs to be seen as part of the current the current crisis. The the reformist Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, reached out to Isaias Safawirki, president of Eritrea, and to everyone's surprise, or at least my surprise, uh, Isaias kind of um, shook his hand and, and signed the deal.
3: So everyone's happy in 2018. So what, why are we talking about Ethiopia now?
1: Because as part of Abe's reform, the Tigrayan nationalist movement, the TPLF, was essentially being sidelined from government. Part of the reason why Eritrea would, would not do a deal with Ethiopia prior to 2018 was because of the prominence of the Tigray People's Liberation Front in the Ethiopian government. Once the Eritreans saw a chance to participate in the sidelining of Tigrayan nationalists from the centre of Ethiopian government, that's when the deal was made. Unfortunately, that has led to what we have today, which is a serious military confrontation in Tigray with the remnants of the old TPLF, the Tigrayan nationalist movement, um, fighting both Ethiopian federal forces and, if the rumours are correct, um, Eritrean forces there as well.
3: So you've got Eritrea on the coast. Tigray is the northernmost province, if you like, of Ethiopia. They had a rivalry kind of alongside and, and interconnected with the Ethiopian-Eritrean rivalry. And by making peace with Ethiopia, the Eritreans kind of shafted the
1: Tigrayans. Yes. <laughs> when, when you put it that way, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it... Lots of those movements, I mean, and, and the Eritrean government has its roots in the kind of violent machinations and, and, and armed struggles of the 70s and 80s. And in many ways, their foreign policy is still very much based on those principles. There are, you know, no permanent friends, only permanent interests. You have to seize your opportunities whenever they open up. You look for areas of leverage, certainly the last 20 years. The airtrains have been biding their time in some ways, waiting for an opportunity to get their own back on the TPLF who it's widely regarded um, outsmarted Eritrea during the actual war and then um, outsmarted them diplomatically after the war. So yes very much Machiavellian but very much in keeping with the way the Eritreans operate.
3: What is it about the peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia that managed to sideline the Tigrayans? That's the bit I'm struggling with.
1: The TPLF itself was opposed to the peace deal with Eritrea. This, of course, against the background of a great deal of domestic protest that had been building up in recent years in Ethiopia, particularly among the Amhara and Oromo ethnic groups, against Tigrayan dominance of the Ethiopian government. So it's a kind of confluence of various dynamics. But in simple terms, the peace deal with Eritrea was opposed by the TPLF. And the peace deal with Eritrea within Ethiopia was also part of a programme of reform on the part of Abe Ahmed to kind of reboot Ethiopia, in a sense, relaunch it. And he ended up, in fact, abolishing the old coalition I mentioned earlier, the EPRDF, ceased to be, in fact, just about a year ago in December 2019. And he replaced that with the Prosperity Party, which the TPLF refused to join. It's part of a kind of intersection of, you know, grievances and and simmering resentments and uh, so forth.
3: Is this a power struggle for Ethiopian power, or have they decided to become separatists?
1: That is currently unclear, to be honest. It's a little difficult to read what the TPLF actually do want at this point. What it, It's clear they are bitterly opposed to Abe's government. It's almost certain that they'll be looking for some degree of autonomy uh, within Ethiopia. Whether they can be described as a separatist movement, that remains to be seen. I think it's an Ethiopian issue. I mean... This is a region which has seen more than its fair share over the decades of um, international interference. And in fact, in general, I think it's fair to say if I was allowed to simplify, I would say that interference has generally been unhelpful, uh, whether it was the Soviet Union or um, the US. And um, I honestly couldn't tell you what the Trump administration's policy toward the Horn of Africa uh, is. I'm, I'm not sure anybody could Certainly in recent years, Ethiopia has been a really important ally to the West. Generally, in terms of anti-terrorism agendas, in particular, Ethiopia is seen as very much the stable cornerstone of a very large region, including the Red Sea Basin and across parts of um, the the Middle East. The kind of international angle there is that whatever happens in Ethiopia does actually destabilise Western policy in the wider region. I guess one could argue that in the absence of anyone leaning hard on the Abe government, uh, things may spiral further out of control than they might normally do. What you would normally have seen is, um, and this may well be happening behind the scenes, but um, I'm, I'm not aware of any overt attempts on the part of Western governments to really lean on the Ethiopian state and say well you know pull your state your, your troops back there needs to be some kind of a ceasefire what's been surprising about this Dan to be honest is how quickly it has escalated and how rapidly Abe has been prepared to send forces in and as we understand it get the era involved as well that has been quite shocking actually um, maybe not how the events have unfolded initially where the crisis came from but the speed with which it's it's escalated has been surprising.
3: Another example, as if we needed it, of people's ability to switch around and their diplomatic revolutions taking place and fighting against erstwhile allies. Extraordinary. Where can people uh, read more of your work or learn more about Ethiopia if they've listened to this podcast?
1: I guess the best way to do it would be to buy my latest book. <laughs> I have written a book about the Ethiopian-Eritrea war called Shallow Graves that was published by Hearst just before the lockdown in March so I wasn't able to have any kind of big book launch or anything. But otherwise, happy for people to contact me through the history faculty website at the University of Oxford.
3: Well, uh, Richard Reid, I hope everyone does go and buy your book. Thank you very much for coming and telling us more about Ethiopia. I hope we don't have to have you back on, if that's a nice uh, way of saying it. But we'll get you on for your next book in, in more benign times, hopefully. Thank you very much.
1: All right. My pleasure, Dan.
2: For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of